0: Welcome to Mary's Cup of Tea, the self-love podcast for women. I'm your host, Mary Jolkovsky, an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that will inspire you to love yourself. Hello self-lover! Before we dive into today's podcast episode, I want to make sure you know about my two books on self-love. If you're struggling with body image or self-acceptance, then I highly recommend you check out my first book, The Gift of Self-Love. It's a comprehensive workbook to help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to love who you are. Thousands of people have this book and the five-star reviews are so amazing. They give me so much life. So I hope that this is something that can help you too. You can get it wherever books are sold by searching for The Gift of Self-Love or go to my website, maryscupoftea.com slash book. After releasing The Gift of Self-Love and reading all your positive feedback, I realized that we really needed something to keep us going every single day. So not a deep dive workbook, but maybe like a micro dose of self-love in your daily life, which is why I wrote 100 Days of Self-Love. It's a guided journal with, you guessed it, 100 prompts that cover so many areas of life, including body, identity, purpose, emotions, mindset, relationships, and more. So you can really think of it as a metaphor multivitamin, something to keep you going, or as I like to say, growing on your self-love journey. You can get this journal wherever books are sold as well by searching for 100 Days of Self-Love or go to com slash journal. It's my mission to share all the self-love tea with you, so I hope that both my books and this podcast can do just that. On April 19th, 2023, After getting off the phone with one of my good friends who is a new mom and has multiple times told me, quote, I am in a decade-long, wonderful, beautiful, amazing marriage, and yet I feel like I am a single mom. I got off that conversation, started doing a ton of research, and very urgently typed this email to Eve Rodsky's team. I was just on the phone with my best friend when she recommended Eve's book, Fair Play. I'm newly married, so the conversation around unpaid, invisible work is coming up more frequently as we're thinking of bringing kids into the picture. Dot, dot, dot. And that was when I booked Eve Rodsky on the show to talk to you about the unpaid and invisible labor that often falls on women. This conversation is truly going down as one of my favorite episodes on this podcast. And I do not say that lightly. It is so deep, so dense, so relatable. You're going to feel so seen and heard and understood. And also, it's not just about complaining about these things, but Eve offers this beautiful tactical solution to creating a better balance in your relationship. There's lots of inevitable and evitable disbalances, imbalances, especially between men and women in heteronormative relationships. And though we speak in these heteronormative terms because they tend to be easier and what applies to many— I also want to highlight that this conversation is for anyone who feels like they're taking on more responsibility in their relationship than their partner. So this definitely applies to you if you are in the LGBTQ community and Eve very eloquently highlights that as well in this conversation. So you'll see a little bit more how that plays out. And if you're single and or dating and see yourself in partnership in the future, Now is the time to start thinking about what fair play looks like. We're going to challenge a lot of cultural assumptions about women in this conversation. So also slight trigger warning here because This might ruffle feathers. This might challenge everything that you've seen modeled to you in life and everything you've believed to be true. And thanks to Eve's beautiful solution as to how to create fair play in your life, you're also going to be like met up against perhaps some resistance as to like, this is too hard or this isn't going to work or whatever, whatever. And I challenge you to just like compartmentalize all of that, come in with an open mind hear us out, hear Eve out especially. I hope that you enjoy me letting you in a lot on my marriage and what that's looked like, what some heated debates and arguments have been like for my husband and I. You're going to come out of this learning about the three words that ruin all relationships. You have to listen to that part why women do more unpaid labor, and some shocking statistics that are trickled in throughout this episode. And Eve is also going to talk about her secret formula for rebalancing the responsibilities in your household. And again, challenging these cultural assumptions that say that you must do it all. And hopefully you'll be able to, over time, these things take time, but my wish for you is that you can create a more equitable dynamic in your relationship. Remember that these gender imbalances are not your fault, nor are they your partners. There's a lot at play here, and the goal is to dismantle lots of patriarchal norms and create fair play between men and women on both an individual level and hopefully eventually a societal level. In case you're unfamiliar with Eve and her work, here's a short bio. Eve transformed transformed her blueberries breakdown, which you're going to hear about, it's a funny yet not so funny story, into a catalyst for social change when she applied her Harvard-trained background in organizational management to ask the simple yet profound question, what would happen if we treated our homes as our most important organizations? Her New York Times best-selling book and Reese's book club pick, Fair Play, a gamified life management system that helps partners rebalance their domestic workload and reimagine their relationship, has elevated the cultural conversation about the value of unpaid labor and care. In her highly anticipated follow-up, Find Your Unicorn Space, Reclaim Your Creative Life in a Too Busy World, which I hope to have Eve back on the show for part two to talk more about that, Rodsky explores the cross-section between the science of creativity, productivity, and resilience. Described as the antidote to physical, mental, and emotional burnout, Rodsky aims to inspire a new narrative around the quality of time and the individual right to personal time choice that influences sustainable and lasting change on a policy level. Rodsky's work is backed by Hello Sunshine, Reese Witherspoon's media company, whose mission is to change the narrative for women through storytelling. By the way, there is a documentary on Hulu that is also based on Eve's book, so it's called Fair Play, and I'm going to be watching it tonight, and I hope you will join me Rodsky was born and raised by a single mother in New York City and now lives in L.A. with her husband, Seth, and their three children, whom she talks about quite a bit in this episode. So I hope you enjoy this highly personalized and relatable yet tactical and solution-oriented conversation about imbalances in relationships and how to fix them with Eve Rodsky. Oh, and one last thing, I recognize that this episode is one of my longer ones, but please, 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 I'm literally on my knees right now recording this because my hips have been hurting sitting in a chair all day, but that's besides the point. I'm literally on my knees begging you to listen to the entire episode, especially around the 40, 50 minute mark is really when we get into the depth of things and those solutions that I was talking to you about. And so many concepts are just going to click. So please stick around break this episode up if you need to involve your partner in the listening and hopefully the follow-up conversation. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Eve Rodsky. Most of my friends are actually married with children, and I'm newly married, though my partner and I have been in a relationship for a while. So I have just witnessed some things that I'm really nervous about creating in my own marriage as kids come into the picture. And I really wanted to just zoom in and personalize that experience that I'm having because I'm imagining that a lot of our listeners are in long-term relationships or want one, are in marriages. They might not quite yet have kids. So I I, I think it's a cool moment in life because a lot of your work is about like undoing some of that gender disbalances but i'm wondering if we could like be proactive about not creating it in the first place yes <laughs> oh my
1: gosh well mary thank you for having me i think it's important to back up all the way up and say especially if we're trying to be proactive that just in terms of my own life i did not expect to be an expert on the gender division of labor i want your audience to know that it was not on my third grade, what do you want to be when you grow up bored, which probably said veterinarian or astronaut. And even more importantly, and I think this is the important thing, when I was in my law school orientation, Elizabeth Warren was my orientation professor at Harvard. This was my 1L year. This was right before we started. This was in the year 2000. So a long time ago, 23 years ago, she asked what we wanted to do with our law degrees. and. I absolutely did not say I want to be an expert on the gender division of labor because my generation, Gen X and the older millennials, we were told that we could be anything. We were told that women of the generation before us couldn't own bank accounts and the world was our oyster. We were graduating in droves from college more than men, in droves from law school more than men, and that there was literally no stopping us. And I think that lie was extremely painful, Mary, because when you go into the world with so many dreams, I literally thought I was going to be president of the United States while being a senator from New York and also a Nick City dancer because you could absolutely fly Air Force 1 in to the iconic Madison Square Garden dance a 12:30 Saturday game and just fly and change for state dinners on the way back, right? It's not that hard. That was the energy that I went into my career with, that I went into my relationships with. That just because I grew up in a single parent home where I didn't have parroted and see a man supporting a woman, that I was going to change that for my own life. I was going to have an equal partner in the home. I was going to smash all those glass ceilings. And what I'm here to tell you and your audience, and we'll explore this, is that the only thing I can tell you that I was smashing 10 years later, actually, this would be 11 years later when I started this research was peas from my toddler, Zach, while breastfeeding a baby, Ben, completely disconnected from my career, watching it go down the drain as my return to work plan after my second son was born was that I was not going to have any direct reports, which is something I really cared about. And I'd have to pump in a broom closet and bring a battery pack because there was no outlets. So very different from the life I set out for. And I think that's very important to understand that this work we're doing is highly triggering because it creeps up on us. It attacks our identity. It makes us feel like a failure. It makes us feel that there's something wrong with us, that we couldn't do it all or have it all. And it's all really a lie. But I think the most important thing to say is that this is not your fault. If you're out there, nothing that has happened to you whether it's smashing peace for your toddler or living that unfulfilled dream of being president of the United States like me, is your
0: fault. Nothing is your fault. Thank you for starting with that trigger warning because I know we do it for some topics and I I don't like to be like doing a disservice to my listeners and assuming that they can't handle difficult topics. But I think it's really important for this one because for the two, three hours leading up to this conversation, and honestly, in the month since I spoke with your team and scheduled this time with you, which I'm so, so grateful for, I have been thinking about this nonstop and the follow up anxiety that I'm feeling. And I think I can pinpoint exactly what it is. And it's being afraid to almost know so much that once you see something, you can't unsee it. And then when you bring it up, being seen as. The anxious one or the one who's complaining or asking too much or starting these difficult conversations. And I will be honest, my husband and I got in a heated discussion about this a couple of weeks ago, which I'm lucky we were, you know, he's open to moving through it and exploring it more. And I'm actually excited for him to listen to this conversation. What's his name? His name is Stan. Stan? Yeah. Hi, Stan. We are going to hold
1: space for you in this conversation, too. Hopefully, as many men say, I like to go very dark to go light because there are lots of amazing solutions and benefits for you out there. This is a 100% proactive system based on data and science, so we'll get there. But I do want to just make space for Stan, too, and say that Fair Play started out as a love letter for women, Mary, but It's become a love letter to men as well.
0: Yeah, it's amazing what can happen in a relationship and the, for lack of better words, happiness that can come out on the other side of really feeling understood and supported. And I want both parties, of course, to feel that way. And I also wanna say that like, I wanted to actually ask you about it. So let me go right into it. Stan, my sweet husband, (laughs) is the one who grocery shops, cooks and cleans more than I do he's almost always the one to start and finish the laundry when I just let it pile up. He does all the yard work weekly at six in the morning while I'm asleep. He takes care of all the household bills, gives our dog fresh water four times a day and fixes everything around the house, runs errands. He loves running errands. I hate it. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm so lucky because so many women can't necessarily say this about their male counterparts, But for some reason, I'm still terrified of what our life is going to look like when kids come into the picture, because I know statistically a lot of these gender equalities, as as him and I see them now, (laughs) go absolutely down the toilet because of biological, societal, cultural reasons. And I bring this up not because I don't think he's going to pick up the slack, but in fact, the opposite. I actually worry about that. I won't be able to fully explain to him, like he, because he has all the physical and the logistical taken care of and he is a very competent man. I feel like he'll never be able to fully understand the emotional side of things, that emotional labor that you talk about so much. And also there's this aspect of like his family being so traditional, but at the same time filled with these strong independent women who did do it all exactly like your demographic that you talked about who said, You can be anything and they received it as you got to be everything perfectly all the time. So having them model that at family birthday parties, and I'm just afraid that if I bring this up, it's going to be seen as like complaining or I'm creating problems where they don't yet exist or it's just like my anxiety because I'm the one that's already worried about like certain kid related things and like those boundary settings with family and just so much of the difficult conversations that we have are instigated by me and then when they go south I feel like I'm that Debbie Downer so I'm wondering in attempts to be like proactive and like you said very gracious toward the men in our lives in your expertise what are the words for what I'm feeling right now
1: well the words for what you're feeling right now is definitely not creating problems that don't exist That is absolutely not what's happening here. When somebody feels a concern, (laughs) typically you're listening to yourself and it's valid. And just that you gave me all of that context makes it extra valid. There's no such thing as creating a problem that doesn't exist. Your concerns are valid. I just want to be very clear here. And they're valid for societal reasons first. Let's talk about those. We love Stan. I love Seth. He brought in dinner. I washed the dishes. He did the laundry. I washed the dishes. He cooked, then I washed the dishes, or he washed the dishes, I cooked. We had a very fair relationship. I married a feminist who cared about my career. He, of course, wanted me to be happy. That's why I married him, that we had this very symbiotic support system for each other. He listened to me. He was the first man I think that I dated, and I dated many that you know could follow up two weeks later and ask me about whether I got the assignment I was excited to take at my law firm. That beauty, because of just the overwhelm and not lack of preparation for the next life stage, is what goes away if you believe you're creating a problem that doesn't exist, and instead. What people do who believe they're creating a problem that doesn't exist and don't deal with this until they have kids, they're using three extremely toxic words, Mary, that ruin all relationships. And those three words are we're going to figure it out. Nobody fucking figures this out. It is not figure outable unless there's three things in place, which we're going to talk about today. And those are the secret formula of boundaries, systems, and communication. It is absolutely figure outable. This is not inevitable. The things you just brought up, the fears you brought up, they are evitable. They can be stopped. They can be practiced out of your life. If instead you bring in, instead of those three toxic words, we're gonna figure it out, boundary systems and communication. And so we'll we can break all three of those down. And we can bring a lot of data and science into them, especially, of course, the benefits for men. And I want to, of course, interrupt and say, if you're not yet partnered, this conversation is for you because the expectations of you one day being partnered and having kids is going to affect your salary. It's called the motherhood penalty. If you are in a gay relationship, a LGBTQIA relationship, this conversation is for you because expectations that are related to gender end up becoming substituted by expectations related to money who makes more money. So they also don't work The figure it out. Conversations don't work. We have to bring in boundaries, systems of communication to our relationships. We have to treat our home as if it's an organization and our most important organization, Mary. Otherwise as good as intentions Dan has, as good of intentions you have, they will fall by the wayside to cultural assumptions because they are so deep, they are so big, and you will end up being a person that, that feels extremely overwhelmed, resentful, erased of your identity. And those are things I would never, ever want for this amazing, vibrant Mary, who has a unicorn space, this wonderful podcast. We'll talk about what that means. But that overwhelm and erasure, it's not just from me, that's a word cloud From interviewing men, women, non-binary individuals from 17 countries, most people in midlife, the word cloud, the two words that come up most are they feel overwhelm and erasure of their identity. It doesn't
0: have to be like that. I have friends in literally their early 30s that already use those words every single time they call me, who are still on their first and want a second and maybe even a third and say things like, I feel like a single mom, or I have a friend who temporarily retired from a very successful career and sense things like, I know it's such a privilege to be able to not work and take care of the baby. Like I should be more grateful that we can live off of my husband's income. I think that's where a lot of my anxiety about this comes from is just Witnessing it and my friends, and knowing their partners and how wonderful and awesome and amazing and helpful and supportive they are, and their wives describe them to be, but still not being able to fully grasp the extent of the issue, especially when it's brought up. I mean, I think it's different hearing it from somebody like you. Like, I think Stan listening to this conversation is going to receive it so much better than that little argument we had two weeks ago, where I, I don't know if he absorbed as much of what I told him because he felt like he was on the defense because I can be scary.
1: Yes, and again, this is not about Stan. What this is about is that men married to women, they end up doing five to 15 hours a week less after babies come because when you figure it out, you have no idea what you're seeing. Let's just back it up for a minute. Let's back up and say that this is nobody's fault. The dynamics change because of, of cultural assumptions, very, very deep gender-based assumptions. And they are easily, easily replaced, like I said, with boundary systems, and communication. This has been my life's work now for over a decade. I come at this work from a systems perspective. So again, for the stands out there, the men who love this work are men like my Navy SEALs colleague who has a book called Extreme Ownership. A lot of men read Extreme Ownership and Fair Play together. They're very similar concepts. My work comes out of systems work. It comes out of being a lawyer for families that look like the HBO show Succession. And so in my own family, when I had my breakdown, Mary, the one you're talking about that you don't want to have, of recognizing that I was overwhelmed, erased, it came in the form of a blueberries breakdown, and I talk about this in Fair Play, of Seth sending me a text after my second son, Ben, was born that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. The breakdown I had in my car (laughs) was so overwhelming and so sad at that time in my life. It really was the end, the death of a certain part of my life and a rebirth, Mary. It was a rebirth in understanding that I was in exactly the same situation as my mother. I was a single mother, even though, as you said, I was in a relationship. It was a crying and sadness for the relationship I used to have with my husband It was the realization that he really started to see me as just the fulfiller of his smoothie needs because as his career grew, mine took a seat back. The money imbalance started to make Seth feel that he didn't need to participate in our home life because he was making more money. But of course, the only reason he was able to make more money was because he had more hours to devote to that because I was doing all the work off screen for our family, but he did not see that work. He just could See the providing the money that was brought in to our family, and that I should feel grateful for that money, similar to what your friend was starting to feel. And so, slowly, I was becoming an accidental traditionalist in the relationship that used to feel fair. And that dynamic, of course, was very, very painful for both of us because we started to grow apart. So, what did I decide to do after this breakdown on the side of the road where I had a breast pump and a diaper bag in the passenger seat of my car, getting this text from Seth? feeling like I'm the fulfiller of his smoothie needs. I'm racing to get my toddler at his toddler transition program, which lasts like five minutes in the US. I have a baby at home, gifts for a newborn baby to return. That cloud of chaos that was so overwhelming that I just started to cry on the side of the road. In LA, we don't pull over lightly because of traffic. So (laughs) it must've been really bad for me. But right after that, I think the most important thing for me was understanding, like any type A woman, you know, sort of what was happening to me. And so uh, libraries were a really great place to start. And I started to Google organizational systems for the home. And all I could find was like the early versions. This is even before Marie Kondo, sort of early versions of like organizing your junk drawer. There wasn't really much out there.
0: So after the breakdown, your follow-up action move was I just need to organize this house better. Correct. I just need to be a better manager. I just need to be a better delegator. I just need a better spreadsheet.
1: Correct. And that was sort of where I left things until, and I talk about this in the book, I ended up on a breast cancer march with women that were really, really powerful, Mary. And it's sort of similar to how you reached out to me, right? I was watching women a little bit older than me with older kids on this March for our friend who had been recently diagnosed, we were also honoring a friend who had died of breast cancer. And this Saturday morning was, I talk about this in the book, because it was actually my first act of resistance, right? Where I stopped blaming myself. Because I had realized that there was really nothing about organizing your home. There was just more, you know, get up early to maximize your day type, toxic self-care messaging back in 2011. And I thought I was blaming myself for my relationship sort of ending <laughs> or feeling like it was about to end. I go on this march and it was such an eye opening day because these women who I thought had it all together, I had like a stroke and trauma doctor with me, like an award winning producer, very, very smart women, a little bit older. And then this morning, which was this Saturday morning march. It was a really beautiful day. It felt really relaxing and actually very important to be in commune with all these women over an important cause. And then around noon, this beautiful energy we had created around each other, there was 10 of us, started to dissipate through everyone getting really frantically agitated, I started to notice, and looking at their phones. And so as I started to look over their shoulders... I start to notice all of the text messages and phone calls everyone was receiving. Not everyone was married to a man, but a lot of us were that day. And Mary, it was just this inundation of, where's Hudson's soccer bag? You wanted me to take him to practice. When are you coming home from the parade? Is the babysitter coming? Uh, you know, I've been with the kids all by myself since you know 6.30 this morning. Do you want me to take Aiden to our birthday party? Like, Did you even leave me a, a gift? My friend Kate's husband will always be my favorite text that I screenshotted, and that was, to the kids need to eat lunch? <laughs> Wait, <laughs> do, do the kids need to eat lunch? Do the kids need to eat lunch. Yep. That was, that was a doozy since it was noon on a Saturday. And I'm assuming that they've had a meal before, maybe thousands of meals before that morning. As I said, these women were older than me. They had multiple children who were existing in the world. So the act of resistance I want to tell you about, because it's important to understand, again, this is not a Stan and Mary problem or an Eve and Seth problem. This is an everybody problem if you're going down the figure it out route, was that these women all looked at me and said, Eve, I'm so sorry, lunch is an indulgence. I left my partner with too much to do and they left me there, Mary. To go find Hudson's soccer bag and to bring a perfectly wrapped gift to a birthday party. And in Kate's situation, to actually go feed her kids lunch, scramble home to do that. I think it was that act of resistance that day of not letting those women leave until they helped me count up how many phone calls and texts we had received that I knew that I had to do something about it. And we had 30 phone calls and 46 texts. For 10 women over 30 minutes. And there is nobody better, Mary, in the world at their jobs than these women. They use their voice every day to solve AVMs and people's brain bleeds and strokes and create the most beautiful movies and, and edit scripts. And nobody had a voice to ask for what they needed, not even to say I can be home an hour later and and to have lunch with a, a group of friends that we rarely see. So that was the day that my life, I think, changed.
0: That's a really powerful depiction. What's extra interesting to me about that is how the group of women were not only in a sense enabling their husbands, again, by no fault of their own, but also by everybody scrambling and rushing off, we also almost enable each other. To exactly. keep these patterns. And it reminds me of how on the day before Mother's Day, I had a call with one of my friends who said she feels like a single mom, even though they are wildly successful, all the money and resources in the world, have a housekeeper, can afford babysitters, like a very privileged position. So it reminds me of the women that you've described in the succession-esque families that you probably talk to very often. So it's not just a class situation. It stays. It reminds me of when she called me and said, So, did you get Stan's mom a gift for Mother's Day? And I said, No, am I supposed to? And she goes, Well, Mary, come on, you're married now. And shortly after was when I emailed your team about this conversation.
1: Well, thank you. First of all, it is absolutely not your job to get Stan's mother a gift for Mother's Day. And in fact, a woman, reached out to me and said what fair play made her realize she's a writer and she was really funny. And she said that it made her realize that she actually doesn't have a magical vagina that whispers to her at night what her husband's mother wants for Christmas. And I said, I'm so happy that your magical vagina has now gone back to like a regular ordinary functioning vagina. And again, that is nonsense. And That nonsense has to be interrupted, but it took, this is a trigger warning conversation because let's talk, well, I'll ask you a quiz. Of boundary systems and communication, what do you think I started with knowing me or knowing what you knew of me when you reached out to me?
0: I'm assuming that you've probably exhausted communication and boundaries kind of go with that. So I'm assuming systems. I'm assuming that you bought the magnet (laughs) refrigerator calendar that I bought for myself, pasted it on the fridge. I started a joint Google calendar and I also opened stand an account for a new project management software that I use for work. And I thought it would be nice for home too.
1: Very good. Exactly. Trello... There's so many things out there, Asana, right? So I was like, let me start with systems. So this is the beauty of why we all come to things differently, why I think they're important. If you're an organizer, a space organizer, if you're a therapist, you're going to look at systems very differently, sort of either inside out or just like you said, what tools can I use? The beauty of my work is that I'm a lawyer as I said to you earlier, who works with families that look like the HBO show Succession. What I do for these families, Mary, is I create family systems that allow families to have incredibly difficult conversations, highly complex decision-making, but they can do it with grace and humor and generosity. And I'm usually brought in when there is zero grace and humor and generosity. And often there's huge family rifts, as you've seen or If not, there's a show out there that sort of depicts what that looks like. In fact, I just saw an article today. George Soros is transferring over his empire to his third son, right? There's a lot of stuff that goes into succession. And if you want to do it well, you need family systems. So for the past 15 years, that's what I've been doing for families. And so what I realized was that lists don't work, as you said, Tools are not going to work alone, but I did have a very special (laughs) skill set, which is I could get my ass in gear, Mary, and become my own client. And so what I had done was right after the breast cancer march, I had just fallen into the systems idea that a Trello could work. That was very, very helpful in 2011 when there was no... Mary's Cup of Tea or TikTok or anywhere where I could find women who are lamenting over issues. There was no mental load, emotional labor, second shift conversations in the libraries there were. And I went to those libraries. They were not happening because we had no podcasts. We didn't have social media the way we do in 2011. So I had to start thinking about what would happen if I first started with these, just those tools, as you said. So I ended up using those tools. Over nine months, I opened Excel, my favorite tool. And I started to create what I call the "shit I do spreadsheet. It was the most cathartic experience of my life. It's ultimately what's become what I call the fair play cards. There are a hundred cards. They each have about 17 tasks under each card that make up what it takes to run a home and family. Mary and Stan are dealing with about 60 cards right now. In play, if they want to, that's the deck that they could play with because there's not kids. You add 40 extra cards when children come along, which is why I think, Mary, you have a right to be so nervous if you want to start a family because there's 40 extra cards. Who's going to be responsible for those? Those all have to be discussed unless you want the assumption of gender to come in, which is what we're talking about that makes all these problems. Like the fact that Mary would be responsible for ordering the the birthday gift. So that spreadsheet, the should I do spreadsheet, was the beginning. It wasn't the end. But the beauty of this exercise was being in commune with women. When I understood that there was a term called invisible work coined in 1986 that argued the work of women has to stay invisible because it's actually, it's a social safety net for society. And if God forbid women start to realize that they shouldn't take pride in wiping asses and doing dishes that that could be men's work too, it will collapse our society. We have to convince (laughs) them that ordering birthday cards for their mother and mother-in-laws have intrinsic value because if not, God forbid, men will have to do it and our society will collapse. So invisible work made visible. The first step, Mary, for me was a should I do spreadsheet. And while that was end up not being helpful for Seth and me, he did not look at the spreadsheet. It was similar to probably your conversation with Stan, where he got really defensive. I got a monkey emoji covering its eyes. He didn't want to see my spreadsheet. That ultimate spreadsheet of 98 tabs and 2,000 items of invisible work that I built over nine months with women all over the country through early Facebook and just through email, because we didn't have much back then in terms of social media. That spreadsheet was the most cathartic exercise I ever went through. It started the Fairplace system. But initially, because lists alone don't work, it didn't do much for me except for recognize that there were 2,000 items of work I was doing for two children at the time that was invisible and not valued. And I had a whole universe of women across the United States who weighed in in that spreadsheet. That community, that early community was ultimately what saved me.
0: About three years ago, I started putting together a playlist with uplifting, inspiring, and empowering songs. I originally did this for myself because I love music of all different genres, and every time I would notice a song that just made me feel good, I would add it to my self-love playlist, and now there are over 300 songs on my Spotify self-love playlist, and these tracks are perfect for when you're getting ready, trying to hype yourself up, or going through a struggle and need a reminder for how badass you are. If you love music as much as I do, then go to maryscupoftea.com slash playlist to get the Spotify link. It will ask you for your email so that I can send you this self-love playlist, and full transparency, this will also put you on my email list where I send out a monthly newsletter about stuff I'm thinking about, personal things, things I don't really share on social media, and all the happenings in the Mary's Cup of Tea world. So go to maryscupoftea.com slash playlist, and let's start jamming to my self-love playlist together. I'm curious if Seth ever took a glance at this spreadsheet, or perhaps you tried to relay to him some of the things on it, and if he ever met you with, but babe, you love doing these things. You're good at these things. You don't have to do them. You choose to.
1: Well, there were a lot of things he met me with. One was, yeah, these are your responsibilities because I make money and much more money in this relationship. Even though I could argue my work was more important because I work for nonprofits and family systems and people who are in family businesses and family foundations that are huge in the United States. But he was making more money than me. That was one of his messages. Another one was, if you're so overwhelmed, just get help. Like, why are you sharing this with me? I'm happy to get you help right? So that outsourcing conversation that white women often hear to put our work on black and brown women is highly problematic. And we hear it a lot from men. I heard you're so much better at these things. I heard exactly. You don't have to do all this. This is because you choose, you know, I don't know what to not have shit in my toilet. Sure. Yeah. I want a toilet that doesn't have like shit stuck to it. Yeah. That's, that's what I choose to live in a certain way. There was a lot of defensiveness especially around money, especially around that this was my work, this was my job, that Seth was the protector and the provider. A lot of very traditional things came out of Seth that literally I'd never heard before. It was like a different human being (laughs) when I presented this spreadsheet to him. So I knew that a list was not going to work. So getting my ass in gear, Mary, and becoming my own client was a very exciting adventure for me. And it's ultimately which you know what saved our marriage and what created the fair Play system, which we now have hundreds of thousands of people playing, and we have great insane data to show us how helpful it is. But what I realized was that I needed to get to the bottom, and this is going to get a little nerdy, but I needed to get to the bottom of the data problem I was having, which is that when I was starting to ask couples. I started to use the spreadsheet in a different way. After, again, Seth sort of bristled at the spreadsheet, got stressed by the spreadsheet, I used it to start collecting data from couples. And what was interesting about that data collection was what I now know, I didn't know exactly back then at the time, but that men overreport about two-thirds what they do, women under-report about a third of what they do. Again, not... Blaming individual men here. It's just the way society sees some of our tasks, like bill paying, yard work, even getting the mail, doing dishes as the be-all, end-all. Society doesn't really see emotional labor in the same way, like soothing a child when they're, when they're sick, sending a birthday card to a family member, signing up for a meal train for a sick community member, right? That, that service work, emotional labor, is even more invisible. So what I did is I went to couples and I said, well, who who does groceries? Who does bath time for kids? Who takes the kids to school? Who's in charge of mail? And a lot of times, Mary, what I was hearing from couples is, oh, well, we both do it. We both do it. Sometimes he does. Sometimes I do it. It started with heterosis gender couples. The both trap was very confusing for me because I couldn't really understand what was happening in couples. So instead of asking couples, which, you know, I still love to ask, but like, who handles thank you notes, who, who's dealing with an aging and ailing parent, you know, who handles the pets, who's handling packing and unpacking for travel. So the both of it was giving me a roadblock. So instead, what I decided to do was ask a question that became the most important question I've ever asked. And this gets to the crux of the fair play system. The question I asked was how does mustard get in your refrigerator? And why that question was so powerful was I could ask it because people have condiments all over the world. So I got to ask it in in 17 countries, substitute mustard for another condiment if mustard wasn't the preferred one of choice. And what I heard over and over again for women married to men, especially after they have kids, was that they were the ones who noticed that yellow mustard was in their refrigerator. Because their second son, Johnny, only will eat their protein with yellow mustard. They will not eat chicken or turkey or meatballs without it being doused in French's yellow mustard. So I started to write down in the systems language that I'm used to for my workplace, conception. There is a step in a project management system called conception where we notice things. We get paid big bucks for that. Then I was hearing from women that they are the ones who get stakeholder buy-in from what everybody wants on the grocery list. And then they monitor the mustard and other groceries for when they run low. It didn't actually say stakeholder buy-in, but that's what I was listening for. That's planning. Again, a very big phase in project management that I knew from what I do for my family systems. So I started to write down, ooh, planning. I know that phase. And then I was hearing from men saying that they were the ones going to the store to pick up the mustard and marry... They're bringing home spicy Dijon every fucking time. And Stan, we asked you for yellow mustard and you're bringing home spicy Dijon every fucking time. Not you, but because we know you're in charge of the full groceries. So thank you. But many men, that was their reality. And so what was happening, which became a love letter to men, was that this was just a classic breakup. In the workplace, we know that doesn't work. When you have an ownership breakup where somebody's holding the conception and planning for a certain task and the other person comes in to execute, we call that control and no context. It's a very, very bad scenario for organizations because what happens when you break up the conception planning from the execution is that you erode the two most important things any organization needs. And that's accountability and trust. So what women were then doing were saying to me, I'm not going to trust stand with my living will, because the dude can't even bring home the right type of mustard. And so that's when fair play became a love letter to men, because we know the people who are just asked to execute, who don't have the context, who just have the control, they actually lack psychological safety in their workplace. We may call it nagging. I call it a rat, a random assignment of a task that does not benefit the person who has no context. So the person who holds the conception and planning is holding the mental load. The person who executes has no context. Very bad for both parties. Mm. Once I had that insight, I was able to take the fair play worksheets, combine them into a game, a card game, which I love because gamification is the best way to have hard conversations. And you can look at the cards and say, wow, there are a hundred of them here. Let's take some out of our deck. But for the ones in play, does not have to be 50-50. There's going to be times in life where I'm holding 70, you're holding 30, you're holding 70, I'm holding 30, vice versa, whatever. But we can look at these cards and say, we're going to optimize our time and our experience if one person is holding the conception, planning, and execution for each card. Mm. That's Mm -hmm. fair play in a nutshell. The boundaries and communication, like I said, we'll keep saying why people don't do this if everybody had boundaries in communication, fair play would be adopted in every single home because my Aunt Marion's Mahjong group, Mary, has more clearly defined expectations in the home. You don't bring snack twice to that group, you're out. But in the home, as one man said, they wait to decide who's taking the dog out, right? When it's about to take a piss on the rug, every single day. That decision fatigue would never happen because this system is so easy to implement It's based on 50 years of organizational management principles, but because we're so steeped in gendered assumptions that Mary is a good girl, if she gets the birthday card or the Mother's Day card for her mother-in-law, she's a good girl. That's where we want her. We want her to be in her roles, always serving. We can't actually put the systems in place without having these triggers of what we've learned and accumulated over a course of a lifetime. So that's why systems are so beautiful when you do them correctly and they're not just the tools. CPE is a game changer, but again, it's not implemented enough because we don't see our home as our most important organization because we've allowed those gendered assumptions to make it a figure it out situation as opposed to a systems instruction decision making situation, which is what I want everybody to do and to look at their home as.
0: Remind me what CPE stands for. CPE is
1: conception, planning, and execution. You hold those together.
0: Mm -hmm. What I'm hearing you say is that for there to be fair play, one party must take full responsibility as opposed to coming in or out abruptly because that's where boundaries get unclear. That's where a lot of conflict happens. And that's where one party takes on a big mental load while the other party gets to reap All the benefits of saying, I did it. It reminds me of after our wedding, I was very adamant on sending out thank you cards because we are a thank you card writing household. It is a very special touch to thank guests who came across the world, literally from the Middle East to come to our wedding. And I asked Stan to help me write them. And I love you, babe, but you said no. That is just the truth. (laughs) You addressed one of the envelopes, and that was that. And there were 28 cards to actually write and fill out the address and everything. And then I sent them out. And his family, his family, his side of the family in Israel, who I've only met twice, including our wedding, received the thank you cards. And they were so overjoyed. And they messaged him to say, thank you. We love it so much. You guys are so thoughtful and wonderful and amazing. And of course, exactly. Stan says it was, you know, <laughs> Mary's idea, all that, but he still gets a huge chunk of that benefit. And that's like a cute, funny, light story. But I'm sure that extends to some very deep and hurtful and painful ones where that contribute to that erasure and the overwhelm and constantly being left on the back burner. Meanwhile, the other partner says, no, but we do both. We both do this. A
1: hundred percent. And I think what's so beautiful about that example is I would also say, fuck you, Mary, no, if I was just brought in and sort of the last minutes to some random overwhelming table with like stamps and like lots of stationery and be like, I have no idea. But I think this gets at the bigger part of the fair play system that I think is so important, which is we skip over our storytelling. And so one of the things in homework assignments I'm going to give to you and Stan is to use the fair play cards in a certain way. And I'll explain what you'll do because CPE, Stan will get it. You'll get it. Rational people get it. And so let me just give you one CPE example. And then I'll tell you what the homework assignment is that relates to your thank you note example, which I think is so literally perfect. And I will ask people to listen to this podcast because that example is so good. It's like a dear sugar, Cheryl Strayed, perfect example.
0: That is the highest honor, by the way. I'm a huge fan of her and I will think about that every day of my life. It would
1: be a perfect letter that I would pick out of my pile because it has so many layers to it. So we'll get to that. But before we can even get to that, I think the beauty of ownership, and again, you can redeal. So if it was 15 cards for you, 15 cards for Stan, it doesn't mean you have to always, if you have a pet, it doesn't mean you're always owning that pet for the rest of your life. You could have a dog day on Monday, your partner could have a dog day on Tuesday. But let's explain the difference between breaking up, as you said, versus owning a task. So when Seth and I started this game, I held literally every card that was in play for our family. Hence why I had the probably the mental breakdown on the side of the road. So we were not going to move to, here, you take 50 cards. I'll have 50 cards. Actually, there was about 88 in play because thank God some of them were wild cards we didn't have to deal with, like aging and ailing parent at the time. So there were certain things off our plates. But of the 88 cards, I was holding them all. I just started with Seth. And again, people out there will be angry and say, why did you have to start this conversation, Eve? Shouldn't Seth have had to have started it? Well, I'm here to tell you, anybody can be a game changer in their own relationship, whether it's a roommate, a kid, you can break the cycle. Often cycle breakers have to be the ones who cycle break. The ones who are traumatized, who ha- or have the assumptions put on us, we are the ones who are going to often do that work. Doesn't mean we're always going to do the work. Doesn't mean I'm going to sit here reminding Seth the rest of his life. No, he's entered the system with me now. But the initial game changer was me. And I said, I'm not going to live like this anymore. And so Seth started to understand what CPE meant. And what it meant, and I'll give one big example, for us was extracurricular sports. Our kids were little, Mary. They were just starting in this let's get the three, four-year-old into AYSO and the baby into a little play class or whatever. What Seth did would show up at the play class or he would take Zach to the soccer field with his cleats and the water bottle and would tell people that he was in charge of our son's extracurricular sports. What I had to explain to him was that CPE of this task, which he was willing to take on, was first to survey our kids' friends and our kids what sports they wanted to play. There's lots of choices. Then what leagues do they want to be on? He'd have to research that. That's all part of the conception. The planning was going to be having to order soccer gear online, return it when it, you know the cleats didn't fit. They were also going to be finding a birth certificate for our kids that were in some random drawer and scanning it and putting it on some 1985 portal Registering our kids on that portal, getting all the email confirmations from that portal, bringing the original copy of the birth certificate to the field. It was also going to be putting himself on two text chains for the playgroup and for, you know, my older son's sports and carpool text chains for three different practices a week, figuring out how those kids were going to get to those practices.
0: And grabbing them a snack for the car ride.
1: Oh, yes. And also being snack dad once every cycle, maybe being, you know, contributing through Venmo to the end of year, you know, soccer party, coaches gifts. There is a lot. And by the way, I've done this for you. You go to fairplaylife.com, click on extracurricular sports, you will see every step of the conception, planning and execution laid out for you. So you do not have to do the work. I've done it for you. But when Seth took on that one card, Mary when i said to him i will have nothing to do with extracurricular sports that we both value it as a family he understood the pain of showing up late to a game so he was going to show up on time all of that i gained about 6 hours of my week back just from that one card and then seth also over the years has taken so much pleasure in his relationship with my kids over their their playing of sports i mean so much love and support and commuting them and learning about hip hop and things that happened in that car and conversations in that car that would never happen with my kids and him. And then what he realized from that, I finally made him listen to the TED Talk that was done by a man named Robert Waldinger. It's the most popular TED Talk. It's been viewed 45 million times. It showed that men over 75 years, it's a Harvard study, there's only one predictor of whether they're alive at 85. I mean, there's a couple of smaller predictors, but the main predictor is the quality of their relationships at 55. And Seth started to realize that to build the quality of the relationships he needed at 55, when our kids were teenagers, we're going to have to start early. And then he wanted to be alive at 85. And so all those benefits for him about what it meant to be a man what it meant to be a father, right? They start to change, but ultimately it was really in the doing of that first card, the extracurricular sports. And so what I will say is that jumping into the full ownership of something, and Stan already does it. That's the beauty. You have a partner who understands CPE. And so it's really easy. If someone already understands CPE, you guys will have such an easier time adopting these systems than people who have never understood the concept of what it means to own a task.
0: Yeah, yeah. I have full faith in that and it really resonated when you said we have like a we'll figure it out relationship because that's usually what it lands on when we talk about it now. That's his way of being supportive is we'll figure it out. I trust you. I trust us. No, there's no love and
1: trust without <laughs> systems and that's what I said. The biggest yeah. erosion of accountability and trust are the lack of systems. Okay, so let's go back to your amazing example of thank you cards. So, the hardest part for people to get boundaries, as you said earlier, is these toxic messages of you should do it, Mary, because it matters to you. It doesn't matter to me. You should do it because you're better at it. You should do it. And then this is the hard part. Mary starts to adopt these toxic messages because it's easier to adopt them than to fight and resist. So then Mary starts saying to herself, oh yes, Stan makes more money than me, so I should do it. She starts saying to herself, oh, yeah, and the time it takes me to tell Stan what to do, I should just do it myself. She starts saying to herself, oh, yeah, well, I'm a new mother, so I'm just better at noticing that the baby's crying. My brain is a better multitasking brain. You know, Stan just doesn't notice. We start saying, oh, yeah, Stan and I are both colorectal surgeons, but he's better at focusing on one task at a time. And I'm really better at finding the time. So we start to embrace what I call the toxic time messages because it's easier. We've been conditioned that women's time is infinite. It's sand. Men's time is to be guarded. It's diamonds. We know that since birth. We see women's professions being paid less than male professions. We tell women in health systems that breastfeeding is free when it's 1,800 hours a year. That's another piece of advice. Do not breastfeed. Do not invest 1,800 hours a year. It is just not worth it, I don't think, for our mental and physical health. So. We've been conditioned our time is worthless, it's infinite, it's sand. And so it starts to seep into how we view ourselves and what we take pride in, that wiping of asses, doing dishes. We are not better multitaskers. We should value our future time. We should tell somebody how to do it now so we don't have to keep wiping the asses and doing dishes infinitely for the rest of our lives. Regardless of how people who makes money, systems will benefit any home, whether it's a stay-at-home, parent home, or whether a person's in the workplace, we have to get this right. So how do we get boundaries to get rid of, to literally burn those toxic time messages, Mary? Well, this is the exercise I want you to do with Stan. The way to start this process is not to start with the systems. Well, for you guys, actually, it could be okay because again, you have a partner who understands ownership. It sounded like when you first started the conversation. So you actually could probably go into the 60 cards and start seeing who owns what and how you want to redeal, But I would actually not recommend it for anybody. So for those listeners out there who are worried about starting these conversations, boundaries and communication, as Mary had said beautifully, are inextricably linked. Can't ask for what you need unless you understand your boundaries and what you need. I'll say that again. You can't ask for what you need unless you understand what you need. You only understand what you need if you have a boundary around your life, around your time. And so to build up that muscle around boundaries and communication, it is hard to just come in with systems and to say, my time is, is worth something too, and I need you to take over things. That is a hard conversation to have. So instead, what I like people to do, especially before kids, and Mary, this would get to you and the thank you note, is I want you to start telling each other some stories. We'll do some practice. So for example, so these are the hundred cards. There will be some not in play with you, but I don't care. You can answer stories about all hundred. And actually my goal would be that you tell each other stories about all hundred cards before you have children. And by the way, it doesn't actually take that long. It probably would take you about six months to go through them at leisure. And it could be really fun. You can do one a night, do it with alcohol or cookie dough. But you basically go through each of the cards and instead of using them to say, well, I, I do that in our home. You don't care about store credits. No, I want you to go through each of the cards And start telling each other stories of what it was like for you as a child. So we can just practice. So I'll shuffle this huge deck of 100 cards. And you just say stop. And then I'll ask you a question about a story that you have as a kid. Okay. So just tell me when to stop.
0: Okay. I can't wait to get these cards. Okay. Stop.
1: Okay. This card says birthday celebrations. Birthday celebration, your kids. Okay. So. I want to hear, Mary, everything in a minute. And that's what I said. It's not a long game. You're not supposed to stay there forever. You give yourself a timer, 10 minutes or less, or eight minutes or less to have a conversation about one card. Call them card conversations. Tell me about your childhood. What did birthday celebrations look like for you? What did your parents do? Do you have parents? Who did your celebrations? Did you celebrate anything? I want to hear everything that you can tell me in about 60 to 90 seconds about your birthday celebrations growing up.
0: Stan's gonna find the timer so helpful because I could talk about this on and on. My upbringing yes. was
1: <laughs> basically. I'll give you guys eight minutes, so you get about four minutes each. Okay, so that's that's the parameter for Stan. If Mary goes on more than eight minutes, there's no anger. Just it's it's a rule. It has to, it just has to, yes. So so again, just tell me what can you tell me about birthday celebrations?
0: Well, I grew up with a single mom just me for the first 10 years. And then my sister came in at 10. And when I was five, my mom threw me the first ever birthday party that we could afford. Actually, I think I was six. I was six and it was at my grandparents' community center. It was this giant Christmas party. It was like the biggest event of the lifetime. My mom has never, they never had a wedding. They've never celebrated her own birthdays in this way ever. And my dad didn't show up. I'm not sure if he was invited, but I don't remember ever celebrating my birthday with my dad till this day. Like he doesn't call me on my birthday or anything. So that's like some bad dad stuff. But even when he was like in my life, he was not the memory maker. He wasn't like, let's plan a trip. Let's go to dinner. Let me feed you, clothe you, celebrate you, attend dance recitals, none of that. Mom was there for everything, all of it. Especially that sixth birthday. And there were a few other highlights where she's been just highly supportive. But I think that one was extra special because of the finances that she took upon herself. Because I think these days, with life being a little bit more comfortable, you know, you celebrate the first birthday and the second. And I see my friends who are parents. Do a lot of that. But for us, it was like this (laughs) once in a lifetime, you know? Yeah, because of the cost associated with it. And it was, I remember it till this day. I love those photos. I'm so proud of it. I'll talk about it any chance I get, which is why I'm so selfishly happy that came up. I think I told Stan about it the other day, and it's probably like the 10th time he heard about it. Um, (laughs) Because it was just so special to have a, a princess party. There was a musician. Who ended up later marrying my aunt, which is cool. And- <laughs> oh my god, that's so cool! Yeah, and wow, how weird! And
1: by the way, I swear you have to swear to your listeners there was nothing that just literally was a card picked out of our pile. Like we didn't, we didn't stage this.
0: No, no, not at all.
1: Okay, so that was first of all so beautiful. That was less than that ninety seconds. So actually, you're very good at you're not long winded. It was a beautiful story, and I know you so much better already. I mean, that's the thing. I, I felt like tearing up because I'm I having not just sympathy, but complete empathy for everything you're saying about that princess party. And I feel so connected to you. I had a magician party in the 80s. And I remember I wore a red velvet suit and the same thing. I actually found my magician from the back of a New York magazine. And I called the magician and I said to my mom, I was about seven or eight. I think I was in second grade, so it must have been eight, that I was going to have a birthday party for myself because we had never had birthday parties before. And so, for people like us, Mary, who have trauma around birthday celebrations, I'll tell you the way I went. I went literally over the top, insane. Every child's birthday party that I have is like a wedding. (laughs) I use a lot of disposable income on celebrations. I love celebrating milestones because I didn't have that. And my father went the opposite way. He grew up in a very, very traumatic home. He didn't have access to his birth certificate. He didn't have, he got all his teeth knocked out, no dental care on his birthday. So he had these terrible memories of his birthday. So he didn't even celebrate his birthday. So he never wanted to be around for my birthday either. because birthdays were triggers for him. So we could go either way. So do you think, with your own children and again you would say this to stan do you think you would be the person who that princess party meant so much for you you would go sort of the eve way of over the top or do you think you would go more of the my dad way of like well i just can't see the indulgence of it because i had one i want to just have them small so it could be extra special when they do have something big like where do you think you would land
0: I think we're somewhere in the middle. Actually, one of Stan's nieces is planning her bar mitzvah and we have very strong opinions about it uh, as the (laughs) family (laughs) because his sister is planning it. So it's definitely brought up conversations of like, would we have a bar mitzvah or bar mitzvah for our kids? Is it outrageous? He had one and it was bigger than our wedding, I think more (laughs) costly than the wedding that we just had in New York. And he comes from a family of like Big celebrations and disposable income. That's probably the number one thing that the family spends money on. And I, you know, had a little bit more of a mix. Like, I really resonate with some of what you shared about your father, like, birthdays also being very, very painful for certain memories with my dad and everything. I think I would approach it as to like, Drawing clear distinctions between what is a party for us, the parents, and what is a party for the kids, because as we've learned with wedding planning and creating meaningful and artful gatherings, which is what I'm all about with my retreats and everything, you have to have like a very clear defined purpose. So there will be certain milestones, like the one-year birthday, that's obviously for us as parents, like we fucking made it. Yes, Whereas yes, like the yes. six or the five or the six, that's for the kids. Like you have new friends, you're in school, you know, the bottom bat mitzvah, that feels very special as well with being like a, a teen and I think it would just kind of depend on which milestone it would be.
1: That was a very thoughtful answer. That is the opposite of a figure it out answer. Like there was so much thought and planning in that answer, right? And so deciding seven weeks before your your child's first birthday, what you want to do is actually not the time to set what I call the minimum standard of care. So the minimum standard of care is the second most important concept of the fair play system. Ownership. Is wonderful. But I get so many, there's so much erosion of accountability and trust already in relationships that people say, well, what if they don't show up? What if they don't do it? What if they don't get the birth certificate in time and my kids can't play soccer? I could never do what you did to Seth because how would I trust that he would bring the kids to the field and not just use the communal helmet and get lice? And so when you have erosion of accountability and trust, you almost have to, you can't just go to the CPE framework. You have to go back to the minimum standard of care and tell these stories. And that's what I'm asking you to do. I want your homework this week is for you and Stan to do what you just did to me to model that birthday celebration conversation, to have it with each other and just say, do you think you would expect me to plan the party because I do artful gatherings? Are you going to say, I do this for a living so I'm better at planning parties? That's kind of what happened with our wedding. (laughs) Okay, exactly. So I don't want that to happen again. I actually want, and it's not going to be a both trap where I will conceive and plan because I'm good at this and then ask you to execute on my vision. But what we can do is we can take the first birthday celebration. And if you say to me that, yes, I want you to hold that card, then within that card, and you'll look at the different cards, you can go over and see what what Stan would want to take ownership of, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe the assumption is that because you plan artful gatherings for a living, you don't want to plan a fucking birthday celebration because it's triggering for you and artful gatherings are meaningful and birthday celebrations actually have pain. And so maybe this should be Stan's card. I wanna be very clear. When you have a minimum standard of care, it doesn't mean that it's gonna affect who owns it, right? Anyone can own it as long as you build back the accountability and trust. And so you do that with what we call a minimum standard of care. So say Stan decides to own the first birthday celebration card, right? Doesn't mean he can never talk to you about it. Someone who owns something at work consults in the planning stage with a lot of their colleagues about what's happening, right? So the planning stage would include the minimum standard of care. And if you've already discussed it, you're golden and you can always continue to discuss it. But that first baseline conversation is really important. And what that is, is what is our minimum standard of care? Would it be just us and the baby? Would it be a night out? But over time with our birthday celebrations for kids, what is our minimum standard of care going to? consist of oh it'll consist of us asking is this for adults or this is for kids as mary just said our minimum standard of care is going to be inviting stan's parents and not your dad because he created too much trauma for you the minimum (laughs) standard of care will be you want to include your mom because you honor her because she did so much for you in all of your planning whatever it is you will have your framework for how to make decisions That is a minimum standard of care. And that's where the investment lies. That's what takes so long about the Fair Play system. And if people just jump to the ownership of, well, he does this and I'm done, I will never deal with groceries again. It's just a list. And the beauty lies in this minimum standard of care. And so that's what I want your homework assignment to be. To start to have conversations, eventually you'll get to all hundred cards, but just start with birthday celebrations this week and pick one more card this month to do. Oh, I just happened to pick thank you notes. Oh, what a dink. <laughs> when you're having the conversations, it's why does this matter to you? That's the only question you're asking. Why would this matter to you? And if the answer is it doesn't, then you have to say, well, why does it matter to me? And then the answer will not be, well, it matters to you. It doesn't matter to me. So I don't have to do it. You will do this. That will never happen because most of this work, because I told you it's that unpaid labor that we talked about, is seen as women's work. So men have had not to have it matter to them. The point is, Mm. why does this matter to you? I want to do this because it matters to you. That generosity is what builds accountability and trust. Doesn't mean you Mm. always hold the card for somebody. Maybe it did make more sense for you to hold the thank you notes card because you have better penmanship or you would get them out on time or you didn't want to wait a year. But understanding why it matters to you means that either you or Stan can do it because it's in your pile. If it doesn't matter to you both at all, then it should be out of your pile forever and ever. You can bring it back in later and then you never have to have a conversation about it. <laughs> so my goal is take as many things out of your pile mm-hmm. as possible. But if it matters to one of you, it's, if it's in your deck, It doesn't mean the person who cares more is going to do it. It means you understand why it matters to the other person. And then you talk about how that card is going to be allocated over time.
0: Mm, This part is really important. I hope that people listen up until this point, because what I'm hearing you say is that if it matters to one, it matters to both. Correct. And establishing that minimum standard of care and one party taking ownership is what's going to give that almost like liberty and freedom for you to actually create a real, true, we both do it because otherwise it falls into the macro theme of this podcast episode, which is a lot about cultural assumptions. And I want to circle back and highlight that as a way to wrap up because what's been my biggest takeaway from this conversation and even earlier when I was sharing on my Instagram story, the way I phrased it was a lot of like biological. Well, so much is going to fall on me because I'm the only one who can birth and carry the baby and I'm the only one that can feed it. And even to the extent of like, I'm biologically wired to care about thank you cards. Like what a fucking lie. <laughs> and <laughs> and by the way, just- you're not
1: the only one who can feed the baby if you listen to my advice and don't breastfeed guys.
0: <laughs> I love that you give that advice. I think that's going to be a big permission slip for, like I said, a lot of my friends had a lot of shame about that decision and it came through gritted teeth, unfortunately, but it doesn't have to be that way. So you repeating, I wrote, well, I was ferociously taking notes, but you repeating cultural assumptions. And then later on you said, you know, they turn you into an accidental traditionalist. That was like, little firecrackers in my brain, because that's kind of the missing piece that I did not have two weeks ago when we got into it about this, because it kind of centered around, well, like, well, what do you want me to do? Like, it's not like I can give birth and it's not, it's not my fault. You're already dreaming about our kids and thinking about them all the time, you know? And I just really, really appreciated that. And also want to backtrack on our wedding Stan was very helpful and there were moments where I let go of the responsibility and I said, this is your thing. And one thing that helped me, and you talked about this with the lice and the helmet and like, how can I trust them and everything if they haven't yet proven themselves? Of course, there's more at stake when it's your child who's going to deal with the repercussions. But one thing that I did at our wedding is I let him deal with it. Like There was this tablecloth that he didn't return And guess who had to drive his bitch ass down to downtown (laughs) to return it? And it was months later and he was getting the reminders and the phone calls and the potential fee for not returning it or whatever that was. And it was definitely hard to watch. I'm not going to lie. I was like, why wouldn't you just return it when they said they were going to come instead of going an hour out of your way. Anyway, won't get into that. So it was just a funny example. But that's a carry through your mistake. Yes. When someone owns something, they carry through their mistake,
1: right? You don't come in and save them. That's a fundamental tenet of good parenting. You have to let your kids make your mistakes. You have to let your partner make your mistakes. You have to let yourself make mistakes. This is part of being an adult, right? It's a part of being a growth mindset is that I haven't returned that tablecloth yet, as Carol Dweck would say, right? So it's about carrying through those mistakes and saying to somebody, it's okay. And I think that's a good place to end is that there was this one couple and her partner decided to, during the pandemic, she was super overwhelmed to become the tooth fairy. And when her child's second tooth came out, the tooth fairy didn't come. And the beauty of fair play was that before it was a figure-it-out household. So what Amy, this woman, said to me was, the dynamic would have been, because he hadn't actively taken on the card ownership CPE of magical beings, that he would have blamed her for not reminding him to put the dollar under the pillow. And she would have done everything she could to ease the mistake. She would have talk to her kids. She would have made every other tooth fairy a fucking, as you said, like a spectacle of like princess and glitter. (laughs) But instead, because her partner took accountability and said, oh my God, my bad. I didn't return the tablecloth. My bad. In this case, I didn't put the dollar into the pillow. I forgot. She was able to say, oh my God, he knew that he had accountability over that. And he made a mistake. And so she was able to not say, you ruined our child's dreams and I can't trust you. So all she said, Amy said to her husband, Ed, was, okay, that was your ownership. That was your card. I'll let you carry through your mistake. And he emails toothfairy at gmail.com in front of his daughter and says to her, look, I'm emailing the tooth fairy to be like, what happened to you? Creepily, he gets a response. There is someone who answers that email. So thank you, whoever's answering that email out there that says, sorry, due to the pandemic, there's supply chain issues with teeth. I can't pick them all up. He explains this, prints out the email to his daughter and says, oh, look, this tooth fairy is saying that when she comes late, she brings double the money. And so he had $2 coins under her pillow that night. And now he says his daughter always asks, is the tooth fairy coming late? Because she wants to double the money. And that's it, Mary. No big whoop, no big thing. It's just another thing that that household does, right? It didn't turn into, I will never trust you again. I have to take this task back. You can't create magic for our kids. It literally was just, okay, I carried through my stake. I moved on and Ed is still the tooth fairy. The more we can just live like that, the more we will have structured decision-making that allows for accountability and trust that will allow us to treat our homes as an organization that will allow us to have you being your full power in the world, which you deserve to be, because ultimately Stan is in his full power in the home. And that's really the beauty is that you can do it any way you want as long as you're having boundaries around your time, some version of a system that we talked about and constantly communicating when your emotion is, is low and your cognition is high. That's, that's what I'll end on.
0: Mm-hmm, Eve. I could keep you here all day. I can't wait for Stan to listen. I feel like this one conversation is probably the equivalent of like 15 couples therapy sessions. Well, we love him. And
1: again, this is, this is we see his work too. And we see all these cultural expectations that he's also been born under because I know those expectations because it sounds like my family. And you're going to do some beautiful work together, I think, to really bring the most intentional children into this world. And I know, I know the fact that you're thinking about this early is going to revolutionize your relationship and you'll be good. You're going to be great.
0: Oh, well, thank you for that encouragement. Definitely feel a lot less anxiety than, than when we started. And part two with you is not a want, it's a need. I am really yes, interested let's in do
1: unicorn, space. unicorn yes.
0: space and everything. But this one, there's a lot even in this conversation, I'm going to re-listen and be like, oh, I wish I would have asked this and that and everything in between because there's a lot and every single situation is so so unique. But I really liked your conclusion about how we just need to create our own way of functioning so that it actually serves the longevity of our marriage and it benefits both parties, all the parties. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Where can people find you? I'll link to everything in the description, find you, work with you, get your book and the cards. I feel like one cannot happen without the other. So I'm just going to get both. Well, thank you. If you're interested as Mary beautifully said earlier about breaking down
1: assumptions, and trading it with structured decision-making tools, which is what we do here, not telling you how to live your life, but giving you the tools in which to improve it, go to fairplaylife.com. It's a fun place. You can do the exercise with your kids. You can click on a card and say, hey, what do you think it takes if we click on this birthday celebration cards to CPE your birthday? What would that look like, you know? A lot of families do it with their kids because it's a great way to get to executive function. Owning a task from start to finish is the beginning of executive function. It also obviously helps in couples too. So Fair Play Life and Fair Play Life Instagram. And then of course you can follow me personally. That's for a lot of political raging. I'm more angry than the Fair Play Life. I'd say is more helpful
0: (laughs) Instagram accounts. I live for your Instagram account. It's the perfect curation of not just you being angry, but a lot of people, like you said. I need to ask you, have you ever thought about doing couples retreats? I think that would be so powerful. Oh my God. I love it. Well, Mary, you should be
1: a facilitator and do them. We've actually done, it's been amazing. We have over 500 therapists and coaches, and we really just do it as a service to the community. We train people in these tools so they can add it like a cognitive behavioral therapy tool to their toolkit. So come with us maybe on one of those training journeys. And then you do the retreats because the truth is the level I'm trying to work at right now is giving these amazing therapists and coaches, the tools to do the agency work at the couple's level. Whereas I'm trying to make it easier for mothers in the U S and so I'm really fighting. And I'd say, watch the fair play documentary. Cause you'll get to see that fight. It's on Hulu. We are fighting for paid leave for all workers. We're trying to fight for subsidies for childcare so we can make it easier on families. We're trying to fight for laws called FRD laws, which prohibits employers from firing people for family responsibilities, which they do all the time. That happens to men a lot actually now, where men will take their paternity leave and then they'll get retaliated against. So that's a work that I'm really excited about and we're doing at the Fair Play Policy Institute. And so I need people like you to be my cultural warriors, Mary. Just in your own marriage, but also on the ground,
0: the more yeah. you can evangelize these messages, the more we're going to create change faster. Yeah, it is systemic. I love what you're doing, and I'll be here for the retreats. So you stay in your unicorn space. Okay, part two to come. One last thing before we farewell, myself lovers. If you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple or rate the show on Spotify. You can do this by searching for the show, Mary's Cup of Tea, scroll all the way down on Apple Podcasts, and you'll see stars where you can click one of the stars and leave a few kind words. It just means so much to me because I'm so behind the scenes when I'm podcasting, so I don't really get to see the impact of the show unless you leave a review. And on Spotify, there's just a button that says rate the show, and it'll let you put however many stars you want. Your feedback helps the podcast grow, and as someone whose love language is words of affirmation, your kind words mean the world to me. Thank you so much for supporting the show and helping me spread the gift of self-love. I love you all so much, and I will talk to you in next week's episode.